Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of Theology-ish, your new favorite podcast for all things theology, philosophy, and church history related and otherwise. And biblical studies, too? Well, of course. I mean, you, you can't talk theology without biblical studies, well, right? Well, you, you, you can, but it's not going to be good, uh, yeah, probably. That, that about adds up. Yeah. <laughs> well, my name is Ryan Kelly, and I am joined here today by my co-host and brother-in-law, William Berry. Hello, Ryan. Hello, William. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I am also doing pretty good. Good. Yeah. We figured here for this first episode, we would just take a brief moment to kind of introduce ourselves, um, talk a little bit about our backgrounds, um, and then jump into today's topic, which is going to roughly be a quote-unquote brief overview of church history, what theology is, why we wanted to make a podcast about it. Um, and go there on. So should be pretty sweet. You you want to go first or? Yeah, sure. All I, right. I can why, go don't, first. why don't you tell us about yourself, Ryan? I, I would be pleased to. Well, I'm glad. my name is, is Ryan. Um, I am 22 years old as of the time. You're of only 22? Recording. Yeah. Do you not Jeez, know that? I feel so old. I, yeah. I, I, I thought you were older than that. I mean, I, I turned 23 in just a couple months. Okay. But... That, that might be... Yeah, what I was thinking. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, <clears throat> twenty-two years old. Um, I am happily married to my wife of almost two years, Grace, uh, whom I love very much. Um, I grew up in Southern Ohio in a church called Patterson Park Church. It's a little non-denominational. Well, I say little, but non-denominational church um, here in the Southern Ohio area. Um, I was involved with that church for, gosh, about 10 years, give or take. Um, I was saved in that church um, through their youth program um, and and through the youth pastor uh, at that church, a, a very good friend of mine. Um, I got very involved at that youth program, um, jumped around for a little while, um, tried the whole college thing. That didn't really pan out. School wasn't really for me, so I dropped out and came back home. Uh, I now work in a trade. I work for pest control, um, and I am a worship leader, a volunteer worship leader at another local church here called the Church at Eastmont. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, William? Well, I'm so much older than you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm almost 26. Um, I'm married to... Ryan's sister, Sarah, which is oh, how that's, we... That's gross. Yeah. Well, to you. Yeah. To you. Anyway, uh, so that's how Ryan and I met. Um, well, we obviously met each other before I yeah. married your sister, but that definitely that, through her. Yes. Through her, we yes. met. Um, I used to be a sociology major at the University of North Georgia in Georgia, which is where I'm from. Um, at the last minute at my last semester, I realized I was missing a credit or two. Um, so then I changed my major to general studies so that I could still graduate on time. So I got an associate's degree in general studies, which is very similar to having no degree in anything. Um, at least as far as the job market's concerned. From there, I transferred to Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee, 
and I was in a bachelor program for biblical and theological studies. Um, it was there that I met my wife, um, or my now wife at the time. She was a friend, and then a girlfriend, and then a fiancé. Anyway, I had about two, maybe three semesters left when COVID hit, put a, a lot of financial strain on me. Um, and I kind of had to make a choice and I chose to step away from that for a while. Um, nothing to do with my grades or anything. I, I had a 3.847, I think, because they calculated out to three decimal points at that university. Um, no, that's not bad at all. Yeah, it was 3.8 something. Had to step away. Uh, with the intention of going back, here we are three years later, and I haven't gone back yet, but that's okay. Maybe someday. Um, I now work as a truck driver. Man's got to eat. Um, far cry from biblical and theological studies, but that's okay. In my free time, I still spend a lot of time reading theological works um, other than my time at the university. My theological credentials is it's a stack of books about three or four feet high that I've read. Um, a lot of patristic literature, but a lot of contemporary stuff too. Um, and, you know, I, I love theology. I love biblical studies. It invigorates me, makes me feel happy. So, um, Anyway, uh, I don't. I don't work in a church right now, like Ryan does. Um, well, work is a is a strong term. Well, they they, they give you a, a well, they pay you, right? Mm, kind of yeah. like <laughs> we, something. We we can get into that they later. Give you a handshake and a a McChicken. <laughs> that, that's more than my. I have had many a free meals. Okay, working so that, working my time there. That um, kind of counts. Um, the church I go to, it's uh, another church in this area. Um, I help with the youth, but I don't get paid in any way, shape, or form with that. Um, oh, so no, no McChicken for you? No, no McChicken. An occasional handshake. Okay. Um, well, things could be worse then. Friendship from some of the staff there, so that's something. Um, hey, you can't go wrong with friendship. Yeah, my, ch my church background is... When I was little, we went to an Assemblies of God church. When I got older, we started going to a Church of God church. Um, so general uh, Pentecostal-ish kind of background. Um, the Church of God church that I went to had more of a non-denominational vibe, if yeah. you know what I mean, um, with Pentecostal flair. Um, That's one way to put it. Yeah, when I was about... 18, I, I knew I wanted to go into ministry, but I wasn't sure what denomination was right for me. So I, I took some time and kind of bummed around my little town down in Georgia and just went to a bunch of different churches, a bunch of different denominations and learned what I could about how churches be. Um, anyway, that's, that's enough about me in particular. Because I'm not all that interesting. So, well, well, thanks for sharing. Well, we can go ahead and dive into this first episode's uh, topic, as you will. This is a lot more of a broad topic than what we will probably typically do. Um, 
in in our episodes. Um, but we kind of thought that it would be good to kind of lay that groundwork and kind of spread it out in front of us to to kind of have it there and say, you know, theology is is a pretty broad term um, in a lot of circles. Um, a lot of people don't really know what the word theology means and what all that entails. So we figured it would be good to talk about general church history following Jesus and his time here on the earth um, and kind of how that has shaped the different groups within the church today, how we got to where we're at, um, some notable events perhaps that have occurred between then and now and why they matter, um, and then talk a little bit more broadly about theology itself and kind of why we want to talk about it and what our goals are in doing so. Um, so William has so generously prepared a, uh, I want to say brief, but pretty lofty history of the Christian church and faith uh, for us that, that we're going to talk about here for a little bit. So, so I, I want to remind everyone that Christianity does not exist within a vacuum and neither does theology. So the theology of the church is consistently impacted and what's the right word? Um, it is forced to develop itself in accordance with heresies and hardships. As we all know, there was recently a a bit of a, a bad cold that was going around. A lot of people caught it. Uh, I got it three times myself. Yeah, someone yeah. you might refer to it as a, an epidemic, or perhaps even a pandemic, because you know it was all over the place and killed a bunch of people. And this has made the church ask itself some questions that it wouldn't have asked itself otherwise. For example, do we have to go to church in person, or is online church good enough? right? That is how theological questions are raised throughout history. Something happens, and it makes us go, wait a second, why do we do it this way, right? And then theologians end up uh, digging into those questions and thinking hard about them. So uh, all this to say that a history of theology and a history of the church is in many ways just a history of everything else that is happening. So yeah. I'm going to try to be brief. Um, yes, it is worth keeping in mind that this is not going to be an in-depth review on everything oh, no. that's happened in the last 2,000 or so years. If we did that, we'd be here for the next for, century, we, we, forever. It, I mean, if we were to go in-depth enough, it might take us 2,000 years to, well, to, yeah, to that's true. <laughs> review 2,000 years. Um, but... Yeah, we're we're just gonna try and kind of touch on the important things, the the major things, and why they matter, um, and and keep it as brief as we can, um, and then move on to a couple other things here. So, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to uh, be situating the things that happen in and to the church in broader history, because we know as people of the Western world, we've mostly gone through some form of standardized education. And there are things that we vaguely recognize historically, but when we take those things and try to situate the history of the church within it, there's a lot of disconnect. So all that said, let us take a moment and think back to a time 
before 2007 when the iPhone was invented and go a little bit further back to about 1953. Okay. In 1953, there's this guy. His name is L. Ron Hubbard. Okay. What a name. (laughs) Yeah. He's a, a, I believe he was a screenwriter. He was a sci-fi writer. He he was pretty famous. Uh, Anyway, he comes up with this religion called Scientology that has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity and is a damnable heresy. But let's just use that as our... uh, Okay. So 1953. Yeah. Scientology. Tom Cruise. Yes, he's he's one of those people. Uh, people, air quotes around that, because mm. <laughs> that's, that's mean. That's not, <laughs> that's not fair of me. Although Scientology is evil, don't at me. Anyway, so we back up about 10 more years. 1945 marks the end of World War II, right? Yeah. We go about 100 years back from that into 1845, and the Southern Baptist Convention is first formed. Right. Okay. Now, if we take a moment to consider what kind of world events in the U.S. around 1840-something might make a group in the South decide to declare itself independent from the broader entities within the United States, particularly to the North, um, it doesn't take long to No, you could take a couple guesses and— You'd be hard-pressed to get it wrong. And SBC didn't necessarily stand for convention. It could have stood for a lot of things like confederacy or (laughs) something. All right. Something along those lines. Yeah. So in 1845, the SBC is founded in part because of racism. That's not what we're talking about today. I'm just pointing that out as we work our way backwards through history and try to situate the history of the church into the broader history of humanity. Um, If we go back a little bit further in 1830, um, Joseph... What is is his name? Dang it. Oh, well, not important. The Mormon guy. The dude found... Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith. Thank you. I I, I was like, Smith, right? I was wondering if that's what you're trying to think of, but I'm like, but... Yeah, no, I was like... I don't know. Yeah. Smith, Joe Smith, that's not a real name. If you can't think of a name, it's almost... Most of the time, Smith. Yeah, but I, I had a statistically good shot for saying Smith. Anyway, 1830, Joseph Smith starts Mormonism, which, like Scientology, is also a heresy. Don't at me. They don't count as Christians. But mm. that, we'll do an episode about that later on. Nice people. Oh, very nice people. Very nice Some people. Some of the nicest I've met. Their theology is just Wrong. bad. <laughs> All right, 1830, if we go back about 50 more years, it's 1776. Yeah, baby, America! Let's go! Yeah, Yeah. so we get America, right? So at this point, we are exiting the period of history that is known as modern times and entering a period known as the early modern period, which is roughly from 1500 to 1800. Sometimes uh, the modern period is all just... Lumped together is 1500 through the present day. Um, a lot of historians are going to they break it up in smaller chunks. So now we're entering the, uh, the early modern period. So we're going to skip over all of the stuff with the Puritans and whatnot, because if you took American history, you probably 
That or, one's pretty hard yeah. to miss. Yeah, the Puritans, they were, uh, there were some problems with them, and they, they ended up running away to the New World to uh, hopefully not be persecuted by folk. All right. It's a pretty common theme I think we're going to find here as we keep going back Well, uh, as well. Uh, up to a point, up to a point. Yeah. Um, because once we get into the earlier days of the church, it's less running away from persecution and, and more... Running into it? Uh, yeah, standing firm in the face of it. Yeah. Um, not to disparage the Puritans, I'm, I'm just saying that that's... What happened? I've, I've got too much respect for Polycarp to speak ill on that. Yeah, yeah. We'll 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 get back to we'll get uh, into that. Later. We'll get to that later. All right. So, backing up a bit more, around 1609, the movement known as the Baptist movement, where the Baptist Church comes from, which as Americans we're all very familiar with, um, that starts in 1609. It started by a fellow named John Schmidt in uh, or Smite. S-M-Y-T. He starts that in Amsterdam. That's, it's, a, pretty, that's a cool name. Smite. Smite? I think I'm pronouncing that right. I, I don't I wish that was my last name. Well, you could get it changed. Got to do true. paperwork, though. All right, 1609. So we go back a little bit further into... Where's my note here? Henry VIII founds the Church of England in 15-something... Um, I thought I had it written down somewhere. I don't, apparently. That's fine. In 1517, we have Martin Luther. He nails his 95 theses to the church door, and he ruins everything after that. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Martin Luther. Thanks for yeah. ruining the church. Thanks, um, guy. Yeah. <laughs> we, we could talk more about that later, too. Yeah. Um. So, um, Martin Luther, he nails the 95 Theses to the wall in 1517. Shortly thereafter, one of his very adamant constituents, a fellow named Ulrich Zwingli, he's one of the first theologians in the history of the church to suggest that the sacraments are symbolic. So, that's baptism, that's uh, the Eucharist, um, that's chrismation um, if you're orthodox or confirmation if you're catholic zwingli's the first to say oh this is this is symbolic it's it's a cracker and juice that's all it is and that's that's had a pretty big impact on yes. modern church in a lot of places yeah um so a little bit more about zwingli he's also the first to take the eucharist the, the lord's supper and he pushes the the altar to the side of the sanctuary and puts the podium front and center. So with Zwingli, church becomes about listening to a sermon, right? Yeah. Rather than having the body and blood of Christ, which is for good or ill. In this paper, I will argue it's for ill. Hmm. But um, Zwingli's the first to do that. Yeah. And he does it because it's just symbolic, right? It doesn't actually, um, I'm going to use a Catholic term, confer grace, right? Yeah. So it's cool if we just move it to the side because it is bread and juice, right? So in 1531, Zwingli is killed in battle because there are some civil upheavals, if not civil wars going on that are sparked by Luther and him nailing the 95 Theses to yeah. that, that uh, door. So in 1517, we get the 95 Theses. 
1531, we get Zwingli ruining everything. Um, and oh, then ar around 15, oh, I don't have this written down, a 1540, 1550 something, we have John Calvin, right? And he's in many ways impacted by Luther. He's a major reformer. And if Protestants had saints, we would probably have Calvin as a saint. And then in 1609, we get John Schmite, who starts the Baptist movement. So there's basically okay. a straight line of the church splintering in all kinds of directions after Luther. That's yeah. why I said that Luther ruined everything. I'm not Catholic. Um, <laughs> he, he had plenty of good points in his 95 theses um, that we'll have opportunity to talk about some other time. But before Luther, if the church disagrees with itself on something, we hold a council. Right. We all get together and we debate it out. Yeah. And we try to come to some sort of consensus. But once Luther sets the example of um, recusing oneself from communion with Rome, then we get Henry VIII doing that, starting the Anglican Church. We get Zwingli doing that. We get Calvin doing that. We get John Schmite doing that. And it just has a, a splintering effect on the church. There's something like over 40,000 different denominations of Christianity yeah. now. Um, and all of those are almost directly Luther's fault. Man, that's... Uh, which is... That is a, not a domino a, effect. Not a good look for Luther. No. Um, not trying to poo-poo him. Because he had some valid points that we will talk about briefly here. Uh, anyway, now we're exiting the modern period and we're entering the late Middle Ages, which is about 1350 to 1500. Um, is, that, is that enough on, on the, uh, the early modern period? Probably. That's yeah. probably enough on the early modern period. I, I could say more. It's like 300 years of history, so I'm trying to blast through this, but also be thorough. All right. So getting into the late Middle Ages in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, as we all know. In 1450, the Gutenberg press is invented, which is the first movable type printing press invented in the West, which allows for the rapid copying of written materials, which wasn't present previously. Um, yeah, all you uh, all you Christians out there carrying your ESV Bible around, you have Gutenberg to thank. Yeah, thanks, Gutenberg. Um, so this is also the period of Galileo. It uh, marks the beginning of the Spanish Inquisition. This is when Leonardo da Vinci was around. Um, it was when Gothic architecture in Europe was really taking over and getting built everywhere. Um, but this is also a period in church history where some very troubling patterns of thought and theology were starting to gain a lot of popularity, which these troubling things have their root in the previous centuries of crusading, which we'll talk more about in a little bit here. So this is where the Catholic Church starts, they start offering indulgences they to get your loved ones out of purgatory so you could pay money to the Catholic Church and those who, on behalf of a loved one, right? And then that loved one is going to spend less time in purgatory because you paid. It, it's kind of spiritual ransom, but the idea was you are offering charity in the name of someone, right? Yeah. So, you know, how you, like, dedicate a park bench to Steve yeah, or something. Sure. Yeah. Or, you know, a memorial highway. Yeah, it's you donate money 
in the name of someone. Yeah. And the Catholic Church makes it so that the person you're donating in the name of spends less time in purgatory. That right. sounds like a pretty good deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then we start having people say, well, I'm Baron Von Butthole or whatever. Yeah. Um, and they, Love that guy. Yeah, Baron Von Butt. Von Butthole, who's just a real butthole to everyone. He's like, I'll give you a thousand dollars now so that I can have indulgences now for when I die later. So then people were just like paying money to the Catholic Church with the intention of sinning and then dying and not having to worry about purgatory. Yeah. Which, you know, it's that kind of thing that Luther was against um and he wasn't i want to be fair to luther he wasn't trying to start a new thing he was trying to rein in that misconduct within the catholic church because we don't have to um spend a whole lot of time pondering theologically before we realize that indulgences were not the move no no it was bad so we also have the renaissance during this period uh Gutenberg Press, this is around the time of the Black Death, where 200 million people in Europe die from bubonic plague. Ah, just another one of those uh, bad colds, right? Yeah, yeah, those pesky, pesky bad colds. Mm. So now we move into the period uh, between 1000 and 1350, which is known as the High Middle Ages. A lot of really important stuff happens in this time period. This is when the Great Schism of 1054 happens, where the Western Church introduced the term filioque into the creed. The term filioque means and the Son. So it has to do when talking about the Holy Spirit in the creed, it used to say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. The Catholic Church, insofar as it was the Catholic Church at the time, because they weren't identifying themselves like that. Well, they called themselves Catholic, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's not what you think of when you think of Roman Catholic. It was just Christianity. So in the West, they say the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, filioque in Latin, right? So they add that to the creed. And the Eastern Christians are like, hey, what are you doing? Don't touch my stuff. We we didn't say that you can mess with the creed. And the Western Church said, well, we got the Pope, so he said it's fine. And the Eastern Church said, the Pope isn't my real dad, don't touch my stuff. And the Western Church said, he is your real dad, and we're going to touch your stuff. And the Eastern Church said, then I'm not going to hang out with you guys anymore. So in 1054, the Great Schism happens, and now we have the Catholic Church and the um, quote-unquote Roman West and the Eastern Orthodox Church in the Byzantian East, right? Um, which both of those are still quite present and active in the world. Yeah, and you know we we could spend an entire episode just talking about that group of events and where that's left us today and how that's impacted the faith and the church. Um, we, we won't go into it too much just because we'd be here all night if we did, but it's one of those things I kind of look at that and go, you know, if y'all, if y'all could just play nice, if you could just get along, 
I, I almost feel like we'd be in a lot better spot today as a result of that. Probably, but to be fair, you're not my real dad. Yeah. Don't touch my stuff. Yeah. Right. So, that, <laughs> like, I, I get where they're coming from. Um, yeah. Just, I mean, there were other reasons, too, why there was tension there. Um, obviously, I'm super oversimplifying it. Um, the filioque was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was not the impetus for... Uh, tension between the East and the West. Um, anyway, so that tension, after the Orthodox Church says, I'm not hanging out with you guys anymore, um, by w within 50 years or so, they're kind of looking back to the West and going, guys, do you want to like hang out again? Because of um, this pesky little thing that had been hounding Byzantium for the better part of 350 years known as Islam. Um, around that time, uh, Islamic invaders were really making some significant headway in Byzantium. They end up capturing Jerusalem, um, and the Christian East is looking to the Christian West that they have stopped hanging out with, and they're thinking, we sure could use some military aid. So in 1096, we have the First Crusade, where the West goes, oh, you need our help now. Well, <laughs> since you've asked nicely, like a good little boy, we'll come and get yourselves out of this mess you have here. <laughs> um, so then they do that. Yeah, and... This is just another thing we could talk forever about is the Crusades and that group of events. Um, but I, I think something that is not often talked about enough today in the church and amongst, amongst the, the faith is how awful the Crusades were and the horrible, terrible sins that were committed in the name of the Crusades. And... Uh, you know, the reality is that's a part of our history, and we like to ignore it as as unfortunate as it is. Um, yeah. Um, not not a great look for us, frankly. No, the, the Crusades were, were bad, um, to say the least. Um, and they lead to a lot of very troubling theological things, like indulgences— grow out of some stuff that's going on with the crusades um where if you go crusading then if you're killed in a crusade then the pope declares that that makes you uh the same as a martyr because you're dying for the faith well sure right um and then that become so if you are martyred you go straight to Jesus, right? Which we can talk about at a later time. And then people are coming back from the Crusades not dead. So then that gets expanded to just, if you go on a crusade, then you then it counts. Oh, sure. So then people are like, hey, free sin, baby. So then they just do terrible, awful things. Um, something that we have to remember about the Crusades that... Um, gets left out a lot is that it was a war and it was a war fought for similar reasons that all wars are fought and it happened to be couched in a lot of religious language um it wasn't strictly 
Christians v Muslims. Uh, there, you're telling me that the Crusades weren't exclusively about reclaiming the Holy Land. Not exclusively. No, oh, okay. there there were other things going on, but yeah. we'll, we'll we can talk about that some other time. Um, back to the High Middle Ages. Um, this is the period of history where Richard the Lionheart lived. Uh, Prince John Lackland, aka Soft Sword. Those were his two real nicknames that people called that's, him. So that, that's unfortunate. Yeah, it's because he had very little land and he was not good at war. Mm. So they called him Prince John Lackland and also Prince John Soft Sword. I, I don't envy that. And his older brother is the Lionhearted, which is so much cooler. Um, so this is Robin Hood times, right? Um, this is also the period of history where scholastic theology becomes the way that theology is done. Um, so we have uh, Peter Abelard towards the beginning of this period. He writes his sentences, and the sentences become the handbook for theology for the next, oh, I don't know, 350-odd years, where if you wanted to be a theologian, you read Peter Lombard's sentences, and you wrote a commentary on it, and that made you a theologian. Um, he didn't do too bad for himself then. No, no, not at all. Um, so this is also the period of history where we have people like Thomas Aquinas, um, Anselm of Canterbury, Francis of Assisi, William of Ockham. So that's Ockham's razor that, that comes from yeah. this guy in this period. Okay. Um, his contemporary, John Duns Scotus, which is where the term dunce comes from. Really? Yeah, because his uh, people that didn't like him— would accuse people of being a duns or a duns huh. scotus, and then it became dunce. The more you know. Yeah. Um, Anselm of Canterbury, who I mentioned moments ago, that's where we get the word bozo, um, because he wrote, uh, <laughs> he wrote like these dialogues yeah. between himself and like, uh, it, it was an imaginary monk, right? So we have yeah. this imaginary monk who's asking a lot of questions and a teacher who's teaching him stuff. Yeah. And the monk who's asking all the questions in Anselm's dialogues is named Boso, ah. right? And so it's very similar to like the Socratic dialogues that Plato wrote. If you've ever read those, you get a pretty good idea of, um, or even like Boethius in the Constellation of yeah. Philosophy, like philosophy to Boethius. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Or, or even uh, the Shepherd of Repentance and the Shepherd of Hermes and Hermes in yeah. the Shepherd of Hermes. Um, so it's similar to that, and that's where we get the term "boso" or "bozo" from as an insult. So that's interesting. Um, so yeah, uh, Aquinas, Anselm, Francis of Assisi, William of Ockham, John Duns Scotus—they were all active during this period. This was like the heyday of scholastic theology, which was. Um, a way of doing theology that is very systematic, and it's it's basically word math. If A and B, then C, and you you lay out very systematically, very carefully these things as they pertain to God. And, you know that's not too dissimilar to what it looks like today a lot of the times either, even with many modern theologians and right. scholars. It's... Um, which is why I, I want to draw attention to yeah. scholasticism, because scholasticism, if you read theology from the patristic era, era of the church, 
they argue in very different ways. They have it. It's very uh, disorienting for people who are very familiar with modern theology and the way that it's done. Because modern theology looks like philosophy or modern philosophy in a lot of ways. And that comes out of the scholastic period. Um, this is also the time where we get the Magna Carta. This is when Genghis Khan is running around doing his shenanigans. Um, Owie. We don't much care for him. No, he was kind of a jerk. But that's enough about the High Middle Ages. Now we're in the early middle ages which is from roughly 500 to a thousand this is about the time where we have vikings um this is the period of history where charlemagne is around we'll say a bit more about that in a moment um this is the period of history where the last quote-unquote quote-unquote last it's not really the last one but it's usually regarded as like the last Catholic ecumenical council happened, which is the last time the whole church was like all the way on board with something. Um, but after was, that, we start getting, it was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but the church has been around for a long time. So, you know, well, it happens. The, uh, the church is, is not, is not a building. And under that, that way of looking at things, uh, the church has been present so long as life has been present and even before then, uh, which is something we could talk forever about as well. But the church is not something that was instituted. It is something that always was and always will be. Mm. The church was present before creation and will be present after the end times and the resurrection and into eternity. It's a very uh, patristic way of looking at it. Um, in this period of the early Middle Ages, Rome has truly and good and well fallen. Um, it's split it. It has split into the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern uh, Byzantine Empire. Uh, Islam kicks off around 600, about, you know, not to... Not to try and get beheaded here, but uh, about 600 years after Christianity has been around. So, ayo, hey, we got you beat. We were here first. Um, so once Islam starts knocking about around 600, it starts cr causing problems for Eastern Byzantium very quickly. Um, around the late 700s, Charles the Great, a.k.a. Charlemagne, is crowned emperor of the Western Holy Roman Empire by then Pope. Uh, I don't remember who the Pope was at the time. It was one of them. One of them. Uh, maybe Pope Pius something. Yeah. That seems like a good bet. Or Gregory. There have been a lot of Pope Gregories. There have been. Um, but he's crowned king of the Holy Roman Empire by the Pope, which kicks off a very significant love affair between the Christian church and the secular state where they're commingled with each other, um, which causes problems down the line as the state finds itself making decisions about war, like states always make decisions about war, and then they end up couching those decisions in religious language. We end up having the crusades, and then we end up getting indulgences, and then the church ends up splintering through Luther. Um, anyway, uh, this is the period that we have Boethius. He writes his Consolation of Philosophy just after 500. 
This is also the period where we have Maximus the Confessor, who writes around 600. Um, and both of these dudes are really, really important. I can't stress that enough. They, because they take theology and they do it in a very systematic, philosophical way. And because of the way that Boethius and Maximus the Confessor do theology— they end up laying the groundwork for what becomes scholasticism, which is what becomes modern theological discourse, right? Yeah, and I mean, I actually just finished reading The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius um, a couple of days ago, as of the time of this recording. Um, Maximoff the, uh, the Confessor is perhaps one for the future. Yes, um, I, I, he, I haven't read Maximus yet, Maximus. Maximus. Or Maxim... Maximoff? Ma yeah, it's Maximus. Okay. I said I think. it wrong. Yeah. Anyway, I, I haven't read him yet. I have his, uh... Die Ambigua is the Latin title, or in English, The Ambiguities of the Fathers, or The Problems of the Fathers, something like that. It's a commentary on other patristic writings. Um, haven't read it yet, but I have it, and it's second on my to-read list, so I'll be getting to that very soon. So, the East, they're being hounded by Islam. The West, they're being hounded by the Vikings. Um, it's a bad scene. The Church and the secular state start getting real, real chummy under Charlemagne, and that is the early Middle Ages, in a nutshell. So, not a, not a time I'd care to live in. No, no, probably... Probably a bad, bad yeah. time. Um, so now we are in the years roughly zero to 500, which in secular history, that's ancient times. In church history, that's the patristic period. Um, and we're going to step away from secular terms and get to church terms and talk a bit about patristics real quick. Uh, the patristics, they're my bag, personally. I love them. Um, that's what I spend a lot of time reading. I read uh, contemporary, modern stuff, too, but I, I find the patristics to be so good. They're so good. I love them so much. Um, the patristic period lasts roughly from 33-ish AD, when Jesus is crucified, to about five to six hundred ish depending on who you ask um a lot of times 590 is the cutoff um that's when gregory the great becomes pope at, or bishop of rome and uh that marks the end of the patristic period more or less so that would have been clement's successor yeah or i mean in 590 like 500 years later Oh, yes. okay. Yeah. In, in, Clement is a little earlier than yeah, yeah. Yeah, Clement's like a hundred-ish. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm not super well versed in the exact timeline of things. Yeah, but I mean in he is his it's successor. Around there. He is his successor just way later. Yeah. Um just a just a few popes later. All right. So around two hundred to five hundred-ish, I'm gonna lump together a whole bunch of history right now because we're running low on time. Um a lot of stuff happens for this period of the church. We have a lot of persecutions. We have a lot of heresies and a lot of development in theology. Um, we have a lot of councils. 
The Council of Nicaea happens during this period. The Council of Nicaea, well, we'll do an episode on that someday. That'll be sweet. Um, Looking forward to it. Yeah. The Council of Nicaea, so I'm getting ahead of myself. There's a really bad persecution, right? And then a new emperor comes into power, a guy you might have heard before. His name is Constantine. And yeah, I, think, I think I've heard of him. Yeah. yeah. Constantine is the immediate successor of an emperor who persecuted the church real good, right? Yeah. So Constantine comes on the scene, he becomes a Christian, and he makes Christianity legal. Now, some people will talk about Constantine making it like the official religion of Rome. That's not what he did. He made it legal. A religion. Yeah, he yeah. made it something that people could do. And because the emperor was doing it, everyone else was into it because the emperor was doing it. So then it functionally became the state religion after Constantine around uh, three. Let's see here. So he died in 337, so around 320-ish. Okay, yeah. Roughly. Um, a little earlier than that. Yeah, no, it is earlier than that. It's like 310. I, I don't know. I don't have it written down. It doesn't matter. Early 300s, Constantine makes Christianity legal. Um, and then because Christianity is now legal, and because the emperor is a Christian— when we have some carfuffles within the church, which the church has had before, when a dude named Arius in Alexandria, and which is in modern-day Egypt, when he starts creating some problems and says that Jesus is not God and that he is just a guy, a really good guy, a guy who may have even attained to godhood, perhaps, but not the same as God, right? So he's non-Trinitarian, when he starts saying this, Constantine is like, you guys are making me look bad. Yeah, I... Are we on... Are the Christians, like, are we unified or not? So then he holds this council almost as a direct result of him being a Christian. Um, And that's where the Council of Nicaea happens. So then between then and... 1787, the church holds several councils in response to heresies. Those councils do not invent any new theological proclamations. They clearly and concisely articulate the things the church had always taught, right? Yeah. Um, The church was always Trinitarian, And Arius took advantage of the fact that it hadn't necessarily been articulated super well, and he was like, no, and then that's a damnable heresy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So then then we have to have Nicaea as a result of that. Um, This is the period of history where Attila the Hun is around doing his shenanigans. There's a great story um, where Attila is just outside of Rome. He's going to sack the city. He's encamped, and I believe it's Pope Leo, who's an old dude at the time, goes out by himself into Attila's camp and says, can you pretty please don't do that? And Attila the Hun, you know, the great warlord who his whole thing was doing that, he goes, (laughs) all right, and then leaves. Sure. He goes, since he asked, nice. And then he just goes and it's great it's a great story you can look into that further if you're interested um because historians are pretty much very kind of attila uh 
it, that's a thing that happened. Yeah. That this old dude went out into the warlord's camp by himself, asked him nicely to go, and then he did. But so, you know, that's a fun story. Uh, around fourth, uh, the late 300s, early 400s, we have a guy named St. Augustine of Hippo, who you've probably heard of. Um, he's the first person to articulate the doctrine of original sin as we know it now. Um, so if you're a Calvinist, Presbyterian, Baptist, that kind of Christian, you have a lot to thank St. Augustine for, because all of those denominations are really into original sin. Um, around 200-ish, we have a guy named Tertullian of Carthage, um, who's one of the first church writers in Latin. He's actually the first church writer to use the word Trinity. Um, he's the first church writer to use the word Trinity because Trinity is a Latin word, and until then, church writers were all writing in Greek. Um, they were using a term very similar to Trinity. Um, it was the Greek word. It was like tritos or something. Um, so the the idea of Trinity was already present, but the word itself we owe to, as we have it now, we yeah. owe to Tertullian. Um that's enough about that part of patristic history. Now we're going to go uh, around 100-ish to 200-ish. We have uh, roughly the quote-unquote apostolic fathers. These are and the apologists, right? Yeah. So in the first half of that century, we have the group of Christians who knew the apostles. Um, people like— Or in some cases, Jesus himself. It, arguably, Arguably, yeah. Um, trying to think of an apostolic father who knew Jesus. I could be mistaken. Uh, I mean, we we might. There, there is the story about Ignatius that we can talk about another time. That's true. Um, so we have Ignatius of Antioch. We have Polycarp of Smyrna. We have Hermas of Rome, who wrote the Shepherd of Hermas. We have the Epistle of Barnabas that was written during this period, um, who... You know, if that is, in fact, by Barnabas, he very likely would—Eusebius uh, thinks that Barnabas was one of the 70 that's mentioned in the in the yeah. Gospels, so he would have known Jesus. Um, what else do we have? We, Clement of Rome would have been around Clement of too. Rome, he's yep. an apostolic father. We have uh, others. There's Papias. There's the Didache. The which... Didache. Um, Papias, who exists now only in fragments, and— a, another fellow who was a contemporary of Papias's, whose name is Hegesippus. 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 What a name. Um, he wrote some stuff that we now only have in fragments, thanks to Eusebius quoting him at length. Um, so yeah, then around 150 to Onward, we get the apologists. So that's Justin Martyr, that's Irenaeus of Lyons, that's um, others whose names escape me at the moment. I'm trying to breeze through these so that we can get to it. Um, and then that, that basically brings us to the New Testament church, which is roughly 33 up to 100, because John the Beloved was likely alive until around 100 um and others who were contemporary contemporary to him were also around um 
during that period. So if you are listening to a podcast about theology called Theology-ish and you don't know anything about the New Testament, that's fine. Um, but I'm not going to say anything about the New Testament to you because I don't think I should have to. You know, we we already know what happened during New Testament times, so we'll, we'll just let that yeah, be. I, I think be most the end of that. people who would be interested in listening to anything like this probably has a pretty good idea on general New Testament history and theology. Yeah, roughly. So there you have it. I think just uh, kind of briefly here before we close out, we should touch on. What is theology itself? Uh, very, this time actually briefly, you know, yes. what does theology mean? How do we practice well, it? Why does how, it matter? How about this? What, why don't you tell me what theology is and what it means to you? And then I will tell you what theology is and what it means to me. Oh, so, oh, is this sort of like a, a, a subjective thing? Sure, sure. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll dueling banjo this. Real quick, tell me what it means to you, and then I can tell you how you're wrong. Uh, yeah, and I almost certainly will get something wrong here, um, as I often do. Um, I'm not perfect, believe it or not. Um, my name's not Jesus. Um, I guess, uh, kind of on the spot here, theology in my mind would be... Gosh, that would be the... The study and articulation of the Christian faith and and of the Trinity in in such a way that we as feeble humans can understand and are able to to talk about it, if that at all answers the question. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a pretty pretty good answer. Um, I recently read a book by Vladimir Losky, who is an orthodox theologian or was an orthodox theologian he's dead now and has been for the better part of 60 years um he says that theology is always trinitarian and if it is not trinitarian it is not theology and i think vladimir losky is right um i believe it's anselm of canterbury who said that theology is faith seeking understanding um, and I think that that is perhaps one of the best definitions that we as the church have been able to come up with. Um, there's another quote that says a theologian is one who prays that I'm partial to. I don't remember who said that. Um, and I couldn't, I can't find it. I tried to search it up to see if I could find who said it, but I couldn't. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's in words that are not my own what theology is, faith-seeking understanding, and those who pray are theologians. Um, and it is always Trinitarian, or it should always be Trinitarian. It's, uh, that's theology. That's theology in a, about, a, an hour? about an hour, about a nutshell, yeah. all of Christian that's... history and the history of the world and who we are and what theology is. So. And hey, you know what, for, for about an hour— I've got to say, you could have done a lot worse. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty concise. I've so, uh, seen people do worse in in my lifetime. Yeah, uh, you you want to wrap it up here? And... Yeah. Um. Any closing remarks before we close out? No. All right. 
<laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Um, please, uh, if you liked this, cool. Uh, please give us a, a rate review. Maybe share it with a friend. If you didn't like it, that's fine. You can keep your negative feelings to yourself. Um, and don't at me. Um, yeah. Um, you can find us on Spotify and YouTube as of right now. We'll see if that expands elsewhere in the future. Um, it'll all be under that same name, uh, theology-ish, theology-ish. Uh, there's a hyphen? There's a hyphen, yes. Okay. Yeah. Theology-ish. Theology-ish. Um, yeah, subscribe, follow, whatever it is you do on your particular listening platform of choice. Um, and we look forward to hopefully seeing some of you again in the next episode. And if you've stuck with us this far... The next episodes will be much more focused. Absolutely. Much more focused. This this one was very broad because we were trying to, you know, put some sort of general groundwork out there, uh, situate ourselves in, in history and time and whatnot. But we, I think we've said enough words, so. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks for for listening. Do we have, like, outro music? I mean, I can make outro music. Should we? I th- we'll maybe, figure it out. Maybe we should have some. Okay. All right. 